Tonight, a special edition of our program examines Robeson County, a place where poverty, distrust, and violence have become a public issue. It was Saturday, May 12th, 2018. I found myself standing in the middle of the intersection of Peachtree and Fifth Street in Lumberton, North Carolina, the state's most dangerous town of all places. Surrounded by tombstones and abandoned railroad tracks, a sheriff's car sitting prominently in the parking lot of the mortuary across from me. Every direction around me gave way to a maze of antiquated homes long past their prime. Eyes glared from their porches as my friend Nick filmed quick shots of the floral arrangement on a small patch of dried up dirt and grass by the side of the road. Just over a year ago, on Tuesday, April 18th, on that very same plot of earth, a woman named Rhonda was found dead, upside down in a trash can, nude, one foot hanging out, still in the light. She was so decomposed, we had to cremate her. Just across the street earlier that morning, in an abandoned blue home, once gutted by Hurricane Matthew, another woman that went by Kristen had just been discovered in a similar state. Weeks later, a third woman that spoke to the media after these discoveries, Megan, will be found blocks up the road, entombed in nothing more than shingles and branches beside another vacant home. We've been trying to figure out how to put them there, and why we put ourselves here, of all places. Welcome to Darkwater, an investigative podcast hosted by me, Brett Andrews. And me, Nick Andrews. Somebody wanted her body found right there. They wanted to let you know, hey, you do this shit right here, what she was doing, and the same damn thing that happened to her is going to happen to you. We have girls missing that have just vanished. International media hype would suggest the serial killers roaming the streets of Lumberton, with origins stretching in the previous unsolved disappearances, murders, and mysterious crimes. Is there truly one person responsible for these events, or something darkly complex waiting to be found? That's what we're trying to find out. Because of the nature of these cases, the identities of some participants have been censored. Brett, how did you get involved? So originally Lumberton was just this town I would pass on the way to the beach when I was a kid while I was asking my parents, are we there yet? And then fast forward to fall 2017, my friend, us both being into true crime, shows me these stories about what's going on in Lumberton and I just can't look away. It's like this puzzle. So I started cataloging everything I could find about the cases on an Instagram account. Now we're here. It comes with all the crime you would expect to see within a community that has the issues it does. However, there are also a variety of crimes there that don't seem to have typical explanations. And I think that's part of why people are so interested in what's happening with these cases, because there's so much mystery around them and not a lot of logic other than what some people think would be a serial killer in the area. But that's what we're looking into. Is that really a viable theory from what we can find? But how did you get involved with this project? Um, I became involved 
by just mainly you and the research you put into it, it, it kind of hit close to home considering we're both North Carolinians and this is pretty much in our backyard. And the statistics for the area are just kind of mind boggling considering how close we live to the area. You're just putting so much, you know, thought and research into this. I just had to be a part of this and now we're here. It's one of the craziest journeys I've been on so far in my life, and I feel like we're just getting started. You know, Lumberton and just the area in general was like an old tobacco kind of country. Like, you know, years ago, tobacco was the biggest industry in Lumberton and Robinson County and a lot of eastern North Carolina. And and some of the eastern North Carolina still is. But after big tobacco left the area, it kind of left everyone there with no jobs and you know people started to resort to other means of making a living and surviving so robinson county north carolina is actually the largest county in north carolina and it's got a a big enough pass to fill that role let's see you've got the kkk coming in during the 50s and being ran out of town essentially by the lumbee tribe which is the the local native american tribe in uh, lumberton and the robinson county area You've got members of the tribe holding the Robesonian paper hostage, pretty prominent local newspaper, and they were aiming to raise awareness about corruption in the area. And then you stretch all the way to Operation Tarnished Badge in the early 2000s, where you've got over 20 members of the sheriff's department being charged and many convicted with everything from arson to pirating satellite TV to, you know, doing things not within their legal scope as far as dealing with drug dealers and taking their money essentially in the area. And you've got some pretty startling statistics on safety in Lumberton as well, right? So for some perspective on Robinson County and Lumberton and surrounding areas, here are some statistics. There's many as 140 people awaiting trial for murder right now in Robinson County. And that number could be more by the time you're hearing this. The FBI periodically releases crime data and statistics publicly, but the agency does not rank cities or towns. Sites like Road Snacks have mined FBI crime data from 2016 to determine the most dangerous cities. In 2016, there are 393 violent crimes in Lumberton. Residents there, based on the FBI crime data, have a 1 in 55 chance of being raped, assaulted, or killed. To quote staff writer Mike Hixenbaugh from the University of Chapel Hill, The legacy of violence in this rural swath of farm and swampland has well been documented over the years. And despite efforts to provide teens and adults with healthy alternatives for resolving conflicts, despite progress in lowering the crime rate over the past 20 years, Robinson County remains statistically one of the state's most dangerous places. So at this point, you're probably wondering why the name Darkwater. So we've got a number of reasons. It sounds mysterious and ominous. That obviously fits what we're doing. But on a deeper level, it serves as a symbol in a variety of ways. It's a tribute to Rhonda and her heritage as a Lumbee Native American, the people of the Darkwater. And just so you know, Lumbees are actually the largest population in Robison, roughly 40%. Suffice to say, the usual trope of American politics does not apply in Robison County. And that really makes for an interesting dynamic as far as race relations go in the past, present, and future of the county. 
We'll be covering more on that later. The name also alludes to the bodies of water where victims have been found and searched for, including Hanya Aguilar and Abby Patterson, respectively. The name is also indicative of the flood waters pertaining to Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Florence, both of which have devastated this community. So really all this changed for me and took on a much more serious tone when I sat down with the family of Rhonda Jones. So that turned from what I'm sure many would consider a pretty morbid curiosity into a very real human endeavor of sorts. It's kind of strange because now I've got this informal relationship with people who feel their loved one has been forgotten in the worst way possible, that her death was written off completely, not even acknowledged as a murder because of all these stigmas we have in society regarding addiction, poverty, sex work, what have you. And honestly, at this point, whatever got me here, I truly feel a responsibility to them now. I want to tell their story, the real story of what's happening in Robeson County, not some headline version that's going to dissipate an in interest over time. She started off very little, being very intelligent. She's went to Georgetown University. She's been from the... California for mating for academically gifted students. She was always so bright. And she was a very caring person. I mean, she would help a bum on, on the street. I mean, that was just wrong. So there's a lot to her, a lot of compassion that people maybe aren't hearing about now and just the headline version of things. Yeah, yeah. you know, the headlines want to make Rhonda out to be such a bad person. And, I mean, she's not, you know. She dealt with things. I mean, we all deal with things, you know. And Rhonda had her things she dealt with, but when it all came down to it, you know, Rhonda was awesome. I mean, Rhonda was special. She wasn't like any common person you meet on the street. She was different, you know. And she was, like, goofy, and she liked having fun, and, you know, she would dance anytime holidays come around. We always get together on the holidays. And Rhonda was always the one to start dancing and start making everybody laugh and, you know, just trying to get everybody up and moving. and Life of the party. Yeah, life of the party. Yeah. Yeah, around here, I mean, well, I guess you could probably say it was about anywhere, you know, people, they hear, you know, that somebody's got a drug problem or that somebody's, you know, a prostitute or somebody's homeless or whatever they may be. And, and they're just trash. Yeah, they're negative, you know, it's, they don't realize the type of person that these people really are, you know, they don't realize, whoever took Rhonda don't realize she had five children and a grandchild. They don't realize she had a sister and brother, you know, and a mother. They don't realize, they don't look at all of that stuff. All they look at is, you know, that's some common drug. Don't worry she about it. She was a drug addict. She went a drug addict 24 7. You know, that was just in her spare time. Maybe she done stuff. Had, you know? Rhonda had went through years of a custody battle about her kids. In fact, she was scheduled for court that Monday to, to, to try to get visitation. And she was found that Tuesday in the trash can. And when 
I went through her papers from rehab and read some of them. She said she was fighting something that she could not win. Yeah, and police say they are only beginning their investigation into the two decomposing bodies discovered across the street from each other this week. Speaking about her custody battle there and that that was going on near her discovery. And I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about um, when that was and where you were and what was going on and what information was presented to you. and What when she was found? Yeah, and if you're comfortable discussing that and if, if there's anything about that that you think is important that escapes what comes out a lot in any news reports or headlines that you'd like to clarify or emphasize on. With me, I had a doctor's appointment that morning, and I was at my doctor's appointment. My phone started ringing, and the person that was calling was one of Rhonda's ex-boyfriends, and he called a lot, you know, a good friend of the family, so I didn't think a whole lot about it. And when I left out the doctor's office, I called him back, and he said, Sherlyn, you need to get down there and check on Rhonda. He said, because they found some girls behind PJ's store and just make sure she's okay. And I said, well, I'm sure she's fine, you know, and, you know, not that I disregarded it. I just, I was like, you know, I'm sure she's fine, but I'm going to go check. So I went around there and I circled around the block, the area where Rhonda hung out. And I asked one girl if she had seen her and she said not in a while, you know. And usually I would ride around a couple of times looking for her, but something just told me to get on over there and find out. And when I got there, matter of fact, that morning mama had left to go to Virginia. So she was going to Virginia. But when I got there, I'd seen a detective, well, I seen a couple of detectives, and I went up to one of them, and I said, I don't know what's going on here, I said, but I want to just make sure my sister doesn't have anything to do with it. And they said, what's her name? And I said, Rhonda Jones. And they started asking me all kind of questions, and it seemed like I was there for hours, but I don't think I was there, but maybe about 30, 45 minutes at the most. It but, wasn't that long. But they took me to, well, the detective come and told me it was taking me to the police station, asked me some questions. And we went there, and I wrote, not wrote, I answered questions. He wrote three whole pages of questions and answers out, front and back, that I gave him about Rhonda, about who she was, where she was from, you know, what she looked like, her marks and stuff. And what identified Rhonda, I told him about a tattoo she had. It was a really distinct tattoo. And when I said that, you know, they knew exactly who she was. And he stepped out and he said, I'm going to go get your sister-in-law to come in here with you. And I need you to sign these papers. And I signed everything. I had no idea. I was still thinking in my mind, it can't be her. I'm just putting out a missing persons report. You know, well, he came back in with my sister-in-law. And he told me, he said, I brought, he said, I brought you here because there's so many people out there recording. I didn't want to make a spectacle of what was going on. He said, but one of the girls was your sister. And I broke down. I cried and I prayed. I cried and I prayed. Because when I got to Virginia, a friend of her, hers called. They said, Mom, when's the last time you seen Rhonda? I said, well, truthfully, about two weeks ago they said well they was two girls just found dead behind PJs so I just hung up and I tried to call her first and couldn't get her so I called his wife 
and told her, I said, get up with Cheryl and some of y'all get over there. Because I just, Rhonda had never went that long without calling me or Sherwin. I kind of had that mother instinct, something might be wrong. And then she called me, and she was in the car, I believe, with the, the detective. And I waited, it seems like forever. And then, of course, she called me back and says, Mama, come home now. It was her. But we didn't know she was the one in the, in, in the trash can until the following day. So let's walk through the day of to piece together that chronology. Uh, it's the morning of April 18th. Less than 400 feet apart, you've got Rhonda and the trash can who we previously mentioned. But before Rhonda was ever even found, an investigation was already taking place across the street. Because after reporting a foul odor since the Thursday prior, police were entering an abandoned home that contained Kristen Bennett. Uh, she was wrapped in a blanket and tucked inside a TV cabinet. Later, we would find out that she had cocaine in her system, but it couldn't be definitively attributed to her death. We also know that she was there prior to Rhonda, based on the timeline of decomposition. So you're saying they, they were found the same day, but the bodies were different ages. So saying that one body is older than the other. So they're, they're killed at different times, potentially. Yeah, that's what, yeah. Because from what we know, detectives told Rhonda's family that she had been there for two to three days, which would put her there, let's say, if she was discovered Tuesday morning. Um, the 15th. Saturday sometime at the latest, right? They were already reporting a smell from where Kristen was, that Thursday prior. On that Thursday. So a lot of people think about this as a simultaneous discovery, and it must have been one event that led to their deaths. But when you actually look at those details, they do seem to be separate events. And we'll talk about the reason why the house was entered at the point it was, because there was the smell, but there's another factor as well. But as the investigation is taking place across the street and they're finding Kristen in the blanket, in the TV cabinet, a neighbor notices a foot and or a leg somewhat hanging out of a city trash can. That's when Rhonda's discovered. You can only imagine being an investigator on the scene for something like that and then across the street. That's happening at the same moment. And just for some perspective, this abandoned house is abandoned because in 2016, Hurricane Matthew came and decimated the area. All of Lumberton, all of Robinson County, flooding everywhere and it flooded many homes. And so it left, there's, there's a lot of abandoned homes in the Robinson County and Lumberton area, and this was one of them. Exactly. You've got all these vacant, condemned homes that have really become a troublesome trigger point 
what's occurring in them or more so what's being found after the fact, which is part of our investigation in general. And it seems to be a trend that maybe is even stretching outside Lumberton. Yeah. And from what we've read, that it seems to be happening a lot in the entire Robinson County and just Eastern North Carolina in general. So the autopsies of these women, including Megan, whom we'll talk about later, were completed by the North Carolina chief medical examiner. They were actually sealed for quite some time after being completed in early 2018. And when we finally got our hands on them after our files request. Which wasn't uh, that long ago. Which wasn't that long ago, yeah. We noticed some details that we thought merited attention, but we hadn't read about anywhere else. For instance, there were confirmed uh, abrasions and contusions on the body though the deaths were ultimately deemed undetermined. Rhonda's nose was actually fractured, and she had small cuts on her face and on her head. They both had cocaine in their system. That was their drug of choice, at least for Rhonda. And from what the medical examiner's report and toxicology report says, there's no way to determine the cause of death, meaning that they don't know if you know it, they could have overdosed or anything like that due to the state of decomposition in the bodies. I have a feeling I'm not the only person who might think that gray blanket could at least be somewhat important to this investigation. But here's what Kristen's autopsy says about it. The gray blanket is disposed of at the office of the chief medical examiner at the request of law enforcement. Her autopsy also goes on to say the following items were preserved as evidence. Pulled scalp hair, right and left fingernail clippings, and a sexual assault evidence collection kit are collected as evidence and released to Evan Whitley of the Lumberton Police Department on April 19th, 2017. And I can go ahead and say, Rhonda's autopsy, Megan's autopsy, as well as the autopsy of Rita Maynard and Pembroke, who we'll get into eventually, they all make similar remarks about what was collected from the bodies, almost verbatim. Dr. Maurice Godwin was kind enough to sit down with us and talk to us about the type of individual that might be committing these acts in Lumberton. Here's the thing. You know, my dissertation, and it's uh, 800 pages long, Mm -hmm. and I looked at uh, 728 cases. I looked at uh, 107 American serial killers who killed um, uh, loads of victims and all soft cases. Because you you can't do you can't use unsolved because you don't know who uh, the offender is. Ninety five percent of the victims were prostitutes, so ninety five percent of all serial murder victims are prostitutes. Period in the United States. The main question is why. Yeah. And and it goes back to one of my a friend I know from years ago, Stephen Egger said uh, he calls them less than dead. Yeah. People just forget about them. The, it, they They're they can they marginalized group. They can be missing for a year. It's not unusual for them, their family, to go, not hear from them for a year. And uh, truck drivers and serial killers, they take advantage of that. Yeah. Uh, and they dump them in areas where their body rots and everything. And by the time they are found, if they are ever are found by hunters or whatever, uh, the forensic clues are gone. There's a serial killer loose in, in Lumberton. As far as the body, because he could have just left the body just laying on the floor. Yeah. There, there have been a number of serial killers who 
would redress their victims. Do you think the blanket points to any type of twisted care or remorse, or is that just how I won't say I won't say remorse. At least not in the true sense. Not in empathy, no. Yeah, just in a way of covering uh, up. No, done. no. I would say that it was more like a a tucking in thing, but that's not remorse or empathy. But it, it's more on their on the killer's part. A good night permanently. From him, it, it, it's something that he can he can walk away to be satisfied with. Very cold sense of pleasure. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. The following is the medical examiner preliminary summary of circumstances surrounding death for Kristen Bennett. Decomposed body found in an abandoned house by a male subject named Johnny Ray Barnes, who told Lumberton police he went in the house to smoke crack and noticed the foul odor. Body was found inside of a TV cabinet, unclothed, in the fetal position. Next up, the medical examiner preliminary summary of circumstances surrounding death for Rhonda. Decomposed body found in a trash can outside near the vicinity of the house located at 505 Peachtree Street in Lumberton, North Carolina. Police were investigating a decomposed body found inside the house listed above when a bystander noticed what appeared to be a leg slash foot sticking out of a residential trash can for city pickup. The body was also unclothed and found less than one block from another investigation of similar circumstances. Well, a lot of, a lot of times uh, the way they choose to do things like that is determined by how, uh, how rough they had to be interacted with them uh, uh, when, you know, when, when they were fighting them. And it does seem like there was uh, some sort of conflict that ensued because we know she had small lacerations on her face, bruising on her back. So uh, he had more trouble with that person. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so and it's a lot of times that that determines how uh, he treats her uh, after uh, after death. And Megan kind of follows that pattern as well because after she spoke on the news when they found her, I I recall that one of the details released from the autopsy was that they were sure some sort of instrument was used on her, they just don't know what. But here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing you, you, you're not getting. What else does it suggest? As far as the instrument itself? No. There was, okay. What seems to be is that what's just odd is, is if you've got a, a good working vehicle and you don't want to get, you want to uh, delay the chance of getting caught, why would you put them in an abandoned house? Or right outside one. Oh, that's right. House, yeah. And not put them out in a in, in, way out. I mean, Lumberton's full of pine tree areas, right? Yeah. So you're thinking of someone from that immediate area without bigger means of transportation? Or that, unless they have to borrow your transportation. Yeah. That's right. You could have a serial killer uh, that has a drug problem, and, in, and he just buys the stuff. That don't mean he's a part of the co drug culture. He just needs a fix. Yeah. Uh, now Bundy was an alcoholic, but he didn't use drugs. But he was he was drunk on every. You know that really makes it weird. He was drunk on every murder, and and he he didn't leave many forensic clues behind. Yeah. I don't know why how he pulled that off, but he did. But uh, but uh, he but uh, this killer is being he's going to be bold, or he already has been bold, and he's going to get more risky, risk taking, and out and expose himself more and more and more 
if he hadn't already done that. That's what pisses me off with this whole investigation. It's like the the cops and stuff cares more about the drug dealers here in Lumberton than the victims. We have girls missing, Abby Patterson, Cynthia Jacobs, that have just vanished. It really encompasses a lot of issues from sex work to addiction, you know, even the concept of a potential serial killer. It's really comprehensive. It's a hard thing to to digest when you stand back and look at it all. It really seems like there's a lot more going on than what, be, what everyone's being told. Yeah, or at least it comes off as that confusing, even if there's not some conspiracy. It's such an odd series of events. So Nick and I want the more knowledgeable listeners out there, you know, the people that have already been researching these cases, positing theories on Reddit, web sleuths, what have you, and the people that are completely new to them. We do have our eyes set on a very broad scope as far as this project goes. We're going to be discussing the disappearance of Abby Patterson, Cynthia Jacobs, Sarah Nicole Graham, and countless others. We're going to be covering the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Hanya Aguilar, a more recent event, as well as insights into the alleged perpetrator, Michael McClellan. We'll be venturing back to 2009 to cover the brutal murders of Lisa Hardin and Michelle Driggers and discuss any connections between them and present-day events in Robeson County. There's also going to be extensive history brought to the table pertaining to what I would call the socioeconomic trajectory of Lumberton and towns around it, because that backdrop is incredibly important to how you get crimes like this in the first place and perhaps how they're overlooked as well. In addition, you'll hear about some very odd grave desecrations in the area, at least one of which caught the interest of the FBI, and personally that's been something that's been fascinating to me for some time now. All that and more, so please be patient. I'm honestly tired of doing stories and meeting reporters, and this morning my walls got her urn and stuff, and it's a whole wall of pictures of her. They have been there over a year. This morning, the, my favorite picture of her just fell down off the wall. It was like Robert and, was saying, get up, Mama. Yeah. She, she was like saying, Mama, do not give up this fight. Fight for me. Because if that would have been one of us, Rhonda would have fought to the end. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on all the usual places to listen, including Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Have thoughts, questions, or information about the cases? To leave a message, call or text us at 919-307-9331 or email us at darkwaterpod at gmail.com. That's call or text at 919-307-9331 or email us at darkwaterpod at gmail.com.